Today is class number four of six, Lord willing, on the book of Job. There's no way you can do a verse-by-verse exposition through Job. If anybody did, it would probably put you to sleep and kill you. Because you have about 28 chapters in the middle of of these speeches that just drive you crazy. Um, And that's the way God wanted it to be. That's the way that he wrote it to make the point. Um, To make the point that there is just a lot of talking going on and not a lot of help. And that's probably something to avoid in the scene of suffering when it comes your way. But we get ahead of ourselves. Why don't we go ahead and pray and we'll get started and we'll do class number four today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this um, book in the Old Testament that is so helpful and um, accomplishes so many different um, ends and aims for you um, as we read it, as we study it, as we think on it, meditate on it, even stop and pray as we read and do business with you in prayer as we are troubled by things that we read and comforted by things that we read. Pray, Lord, today that you might help us um, discover more about you, that you would reveal more of yourself to us through this book, and help us to learn how to suffer well, help us to learn how to comfort well today, and let us see how we can uphold your character and speak of you what is right at the scene of our own suffering when it comes, if it has not come already. Be with us. Draw near to us as we draw near to you through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're looking at one of the handouts um, that I, was back on the table, uh, the whole first page is just a review. I'm just not going to talk much about that except remind you where we've been in class one. We went over who wrote Job, when and where did Job live. Job dates most likely back to the period of the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, It's a very early edition, a very early part of Revelation, some of the earliest. You see the structure and the summary of Job there. The first two chapters are the introduction. And really, um, those first two chapters are the interpretive key for how to understand chapters 3 through 31, at least. Um, And even some of... Elihu's speeches in chapter 32, 37. But the first two chapters are the interpretive key. You know how to um, understand what Job is saying in his speeches and in the things that he says because you get the information in chapters 1 and 2 that he didn't have. There will be sometimes you'll read Job and you'll say what he's saying in one of his speeches and you'll say, that's right. And then in the next verse, that's wrong. And the reason you can come to that conclusion is because you saw what happened in chapters 1 and 2, and he didn't. And he's working in the dark, trying to give words to this venting of his heart that is going on in his suffering, and he doesn't have the information you have. And so, really, chapters 1 and 2 are the interpretive key. That same thing happens on the other side with the counselors. You can hear them say something in, in, in one minute and say, that's, that's exactly right. And then the next verse, and that's not true. 
Why are you saying that? And the reason you know that and can come to those conclusions is because you read chapters 1 and 2. So really, chapters 1 and 2 set you up to be able to understand the book well. And then it finishes, of course, with the epilogue. Um, We talked about where Job sits in the rest of the Bible. It's a part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. sits at the front end of that because of its early date. Uh, remaining classes together, Lord willing, we have two more on the 21st and the 28th. I'm not sure it's going to be exactly what it says there. I, I have a, a category of realities to face in the scene of suffering. We're probably not going to get to that next time. We might um, have another part two of what we're talking about today. Um, the last two classes, classes two and three, we talked about really the unique position and place and purpose of Job in your Bible and it's God providing for us through it very early on, providing um, gospel anticipations, uh, categories to, um, to begin to form in your mind that, oh, there's going to be an innocent sufferer who's going to suffer greatly, undeservedly so. And that's the contribution of Job to your Bible in many ways. And there's many other contributions, but that's one of the main ones. And then so I I tried to come up with some of these gospel anticipations, and there are seven of them there. And I tried to word them in such a way that the wording works for Job, and it works for Jesus. So if you look at number one, a satanic attack against God tests the faithfulness of his innocent servant. Are you talking about Job or Jesus? The answer is yes. Number two, an innocent servant faithfully endures undeserved suffering. Job did that. He was preserved, and Jesus did that. Number three, the cries of an innocent sufferer are not always answered by God. That was true for Job. That was true for Jesus at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No answer. Number four, God ordains mystery and misunderstanding within undeserved suffering. That's true for Job. He didn't have chapters one and two when it was happening to him. He didn't know. And there's lots of mystery and misunderstanding that the people had, the crowds had, that even the disciples had, uh, even his own mother had. Uh, concerning Jesus when he was suffering and throughout his life. Number five, God restores sinners through an innocent sufferer. That's true for Job, and it's true for Jesus. Even more so, it's true for Jesus. And by the way, number five is the only statement that doesn't fit for you. Okay? All the other ones do also um, at some point. Great blessing awaits, number six, an innocent sufferer after undeserved suffering. That's what happens in Job chapter 42. And that's what happened for Jesus. He has begun to experience the reward of his suffering. And so will we one day. And lastly, an undeserved, the undeserved suffering of an innocent servant is a theologically rich but costly scene. There is so much going on theologically when an innocent sufferer suffers undeservedly. That's true for Job. All kinds of theological contemplations going on in his mind and in his friend's mind. And how much more so is the cross of Jesus? Is it not the most rich, theologically rich place and costly? Souls rise and fall on the cross in the scene of suffering of our Savior. So those are the first three classes. Uh, Just as a reminder in terms of audio, there is no audio from class two, except now there is. We, We didn't get it recorded on the second week. But the recording from last week subs for both class two and three because I kind of just did it all again in verse three or in the third class. Um, so you'll find all the recordings so far up to speed, I hope, at this point. And today we are recording again and, and you can 
come back and listen to this if you like. Turn your sheet over if you want. We'll move on. And what I want to give you today is I want to give you, it says four concerns. There may only end up being three, and today there's actually only two. But four concerns, four things to concern yourself with in the scene of suffering. Now we'll start talking a little bit more about what do we practically want to walk away with from this great book. And here's the first one. Are you concerned about character? Are you concerned about character? Primarily, first, God's character in the scene of suffering. Is that a concern to you in your your suffering? God's character. And then, of course, your own character. And, And this is true regardless of whether you are the sufferer or if you are the counselor. If you're the one counseling the one who's trying to endure their suffering, or you are the one suffering yourself, you need to be concerned with God's character and then your own. If the book of Job emphasizes anything, it is that both parties must be concerned for God's character above all other things. The the sufferer and the counselor must defend God's character in the suffering, must protect it, must represent it accurately at the scene of suffering. But they must also be concerned for their own character as they are in that scene of suffering. They must be godly. The sufferer and the counselor must be righteous. They must be holy. Remember from chapters 1 and 2 in Job, that Satan's strategy, his attack, demonstrated, and the attack is on God in heaven, demonstrate that both of those two character arenas are inseparable. God's character and the sufferer's character or the counselor's character. Because Satan's attack was this. If he could malign God's character in Job's mind, what would happen to Job's character? He would no longer have integrity before God. He wouldn't hold on to his integrity. He would curse God and die, his wife said. Satan said, curse God to his face is what he would do. So if he could malign God's character, if he could make it appear questionable in Job's eyes, then Job would ruin his own character. That was the plan. And the way that he would malign God's character is Satan was trying to demonstrate that God is not satisfying enough to hold Job's loyalty. God has to bribe Job with blessings just to keep Job faithful because God himself is not satisfying or desirable enough. That's, in fact, that's how, un, here's what Satan would say, that's how undesirable God you are. You have to give Job stuff to keep him loyal to you. That's, a, that's an attack on the character of God. Take away the blessing, Job won't find God's character worth keeping his own character clean for. That's the way to lose your own character at the scene of suffering, is by first doubting God's character. And the inverse reverse is the solution. Your best bet at the scene of suffering to maintain your own character. If you really want to maintain your own character, it is to meditate on, defend, rehearse, and represent God's character rightly. There's your hope for your character to be maintained. 
Let me show you two statements at the beginning of Job that show the inseparable nature between God's character and Job's character. Go to Job chapter 1, verse 22, the last verse of chapter 1. Here's what it says about once suffering, the first wave of suffering hit Job. Look at this. Through all this, Job did not sin. Stop. Whose character is in view in that? Job did not sin. Job's character. And look. Nor did he blame or find fault with God. Whose character is involved there? God's. So he defended and and maintained his own character while he maintained God's character. Okay? As long as Job did that, he was okay. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. This is... The troubling words from his wife. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Whose character is involved there? Job's. Curse God. Whose character is being maligned there? Well, God's. And die. Even she understood the connection. I mean, her her twisted words reveal it. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Your character still matters to you? Look what has happened to you. What good is your character that you've been maintaining, the maintaining of your character? What good has it done you? Curse God. Just malign his character and then you'll die. You'll finally find relief through forfeiting your own character By maligning God's character. It's twisted logic. It's sinful. So now let's start in and let's let Job make a case for this. I want you to go to Job chapter 40. This is God confronting Job at the end. And we're going to look mostly at what Job, uh, what God says to Job and what Job says in response to God. And ask you the question, are you concerned for God's character at the scene of suffering? Let's illustrate this. This is from God's speech, Job chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Look at this. Then Yahweh said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. God says that Job had become what? A fault finder. With whom? With God. Job had lost concern for God's character along the way as the suffering dragged on. He started to find faults with God and his character and that made him contend with the Almighty. He became a contentious servant of God. And Job had also become a man who believed God needed to be reproved. Let him who reproves God answer it. You reprove someone when there is a defect in their character. So Job had lost concern for God's character. Drop down to verse 8 of the same chapter. God says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me? That you may be justified? Are you going to slam my character so that your... Job actually thought, if I put God's character down, it will show my character to be justified. And God is calling him out on it. God's justice in Job's suffering, in his mind, in Job's opinion, was worth discrediting. 
God, your justice is worth discrediting in my suffering. He lost concern for defending God's justice and reputation and character. He was willing to condemn God to lift himself up. Job was more impressed with his own interpretation of how things should be going for him than God's justice, how God's justice was working out for him. So, to justify Job's own superior view of things and how they should be going, he had to condemn what God was doing, and that was no problem for Job in his suffering, unfortunately. Go over to chapter 42, verse 2. Are you concerned for God's character? This is an expression from Job's repentance. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is a statement from his repentance. This is now finally right thinking about God. Job could finally say what was correct about God, but that he didn't have the capacity to say earlier. And it is that God was sovereign and he was all-powerful. Because earlier, Job wasn't so sure about that. If God indeed can do all things, he's not answering me, he's not changing any of this. In fact, if God had any good purpose toward me, it looks like it's been thwarted in my suffering. His suffering looked to Job like God's purposes were thwarted. His suffering, he believed, was evidence that God could not control what was going on. After all, because God wasn't acting, God wasn't doing anything, God was nowhere to be found from his perspective. And so Job lost concern for God's character. But in his repentance, Job begins, one of the, some of the first things he says is the, the affirming of God's true character. Look at verse 3. Uh, Job quotes something God said earlier. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, here, watch this. With clarity of mind now, what is he saying? I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. What had Job been doing? Well, God's character got maligned by Job. Why? Because Job was venturing out into an arena of of things he did not know about God, why he was doing this, what, what he was doing, what he wasn't doing in it. He ventured to speak about God from what he did not know, and what happened was God's character was maligned in that. It's a huge lesson in that for us, and that is to be very careful about straying into what you don't understand or know about God and what he is doing and what he's not doing. If you don't know, don't meditate on it. Ask questions. Will you be curious? You're going to be very curious. But you can't let curiosity trump God's character. Okay? Look at verses 5 and 6. Oh, by the way, look at the end of verse 3. I've declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. That's an expression of repentance because there was nothing wonderful in his eyes while he was suffering. But now, in repentance, he says, 
I was venturing into things that are too wonderful for me to speak, which I didn't know. Look at verse 5. I have heard, this is Job saying this to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Would you rather talk to your loved one on the phone or see him? Which is a better interaction with them? Seeing them. What is Job saying? I knew stuff about you before in my suffering, but now what? I see. I have greater clarity now than I ever had. Job admits he didn't see God as clearly as he should have or as he does now in his repentance. And he spoke from what he did not see clearly about God. And he now what? What is he doing? I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. Verse 6. Why not choose instead to suffer without explanation than malign God's character based on conjecture. God's character in our suffering is always more important than us getting the cause. Okay, so if there's God's character or getting the cause, and you have to make a choice between those two things, set aside the getting the cause and hold on to God's character. That is what did not happen in the book of Job. And it goes on and on and on in painful, vivid detail. How about one more? You know this, chapter 42, verses 7 and 8. In regards to the counselors, his friends, God comes to them and he says, You did not speak right of me. As my servant Job has and that's a tricky way to explain that. I, you know, did Job always speak right of God? No, he didn't. But God's being really gracious in, in his assessment of Job before his friends. <laughs> he, he believed the best, even though he could see the worst and brought him through repentance from the worst. But God's wrath was kindled against Job's friends who did not speak what was right concerning God. My wrath is kindled against you, he said, because you didn't have right thoughts about me. You didn't speak what was right about me. That is not a condemnation from a judge. That is fatherly displeasure, fatherly correction, fatherly discipline. It is the rebuke of a father. There's plenty of evidence within Job to see how concerned you and I should be with God's character at the scene of suffering. So, at the scene of suffering, you will face your suffering. You will look suffering square on in the eyes, either your own or your, 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 your spouse's, your, your child's, your parents, your friends. And then you will take a look at God and you will feel that those two things do not fit. These two things are at odds with one another. If I take the one, I feel like I have to abandon the other. Or if I hold on to the one, I have no explanation for this. You're going to look at the, in, into the face of your suffering and look at God, and you're going to feel like they don't fit. Unfortunately, it is possible in that moment to explain the conundrum through, and I'm going to use the words that we've just walked through. The way that you explain it is by finding fault with God, the way you explain that is by reproving God. The way you explain these two things being coinciding is, well, I'll discredit his justice. I'll condemn him to prop up my better view of what has happened and should be going on. Job did all of those things. And don't forget what kind of man God said Job 
was. Do you remember? How about chapter 1, verse 8? Do you remember? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. If that kind of a good man can lose concern for God's character at his scene of suffering, we should cry out for God's spirit and strength to keep us from such foolishness in our own scene of suffering. Let's move on to being concerned with your own character. There's plenty of evidence in Job for how we need to be concerned for God's character. Let's talk about our own character. Are you concerned for your own character at the scene of suffering? Well, what should be clear is that the quickest way to malign your character is by first maligning God's at the scene of suffering, right? There is no way to maintain your own integrity while vilifying God's integrity at the same time. Your character always depends on you what? Upholding God's character. They're inseparable. This is why theology matters. What you believe about God matters. And you're all theologians. Everyone is. The question is, what kind of a theologian are you? How good of a theologian are you? Your character always depends on you upholding God's character. And if the book of Job tells us anything, it is that God wanted to put big emphasis on the importance of Job's character prior to his suffering. Let's go back to Job chapter 1. Let's just remind ourselves of this again. Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was what? God wants this clear right at the very front. He was blameless. He was upright. He was fearing God and turning away from evil. That's what kind of man he was. Drop down to verse 8. Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. A blameless man, an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So if the book of Job tells us anything, is that God wants to put that big emphasis on out there about Job's character prior to the suffering. Once the suffering began, what emphasis is God wanting to put on this? Well, chapter um, 1, verse 22, we looked at this. Through all of this first wave of suffering, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So once Job's suffering, okay, so before the suffering, God was very concerned that we all understand he's a godly man. Once the suffering began, God did not lose interest in Job's character. Chapter 2, verse 3. Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast to his character, his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without a cause. Chapter 2, verse 10, the last part of verse 10 In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So once the suffering began, God still didn't lose interest in Job's character. And even after he sinned boldly against God over and over, even at the end of all of his suffering, when he 
What did he do? God was there initiating Job's repentance, restoring his character, restoring the character of his friends. So before suffering, God is concerned about your character, your righteousness, your godliness. When it starts and as it's going on, he wants you to be concerned about your character while you're suffering. And when it's all over and you sin boldly against God, he is there to restore you to right character. So when you find yourself at the scene of suffering, either as the sufferer or as the counselor, as the friend, as the helper, you need to help each other guard and defend and examine and dig deeper and exalt the character of God. One of the things you can do is just ask, what are you learning about God Let's make a list of the attributes of God, the things that we know about him. Let's talk to him about those. Let's give thanks to him for those. God, we thank you that you are good. And in so doing, you will preoccupy your thoughts with what you know to be true about God. And in busying your mind with things like that, by busying your mind with meditating on God and his character, you're actually going to give your mind less time to contemplate the doubts that arise about his character. Because you will have doubts about him and what he's doing and what he's not doing. So help each other think right thoughts about God at the scene of suffering. And in so doing, you're fortifying and guarding your own holiness of life. Don't think, well, I'm I'm just not going to think about God because I I can't get him figured out. I'll just try to be godly myself. That's not going to work. Get to your own character through God's character by affirming his, by exalting him, by praising him, by thanking him for being the kind of God that he is. Keep your Bible near you at the scene of suffering. Keep your Bible open there. Listen to the Bible when you're too tired to read. I have a, I have a sufferer at home whose eyelids burn, whose eyes burn so badly that it's just easier to listen sometimes. Read your Bible to each other. Listen to the word. Sing it. Pray it. What does the Bible do? It keeps your mind and your words on a biblical track about God. If you put your mind on the track of the Bible, you will not veer off. Restrain yourself there. And Job had a good start, did he not? Chapter 1, verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The second wave of suffering hit him, hit him hard. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job had a good start, didn't he? Did that good start guarantee anything good to follow? No. Listen, that doesn't mean a good start doesn't matter. You need a good start, right? But what is the goal in our suffering? It is not merely to have a good start. It is to endure. It is to persevere. So take one day at a time. 
That's all God gives you anyway, even when you're feeling great and you think you can conquer the world and you're strong and you're in the, the, the strength of your youth and you just think you can, nothing's going to stop me and I just, success is going on. Listen, even in those times, you're only supposed to be taking one day at a time. Jesus told in a parable about a righteous man who was making plans to build barns and make even more and store more stuff. He said, you fool, do you not know that your soul is required of you tonight? You don't know. None of us here know if our soul is required of us tonight or not. All God has given to you is today. So just take today. You don't have to persevere for the next three weeks. Today. Today, you have to persevere today. So reduce it down to that segment. And if you need to, reduce it down to the segment of the afternoon. I just have to make it through today, this afternoon. And if that's too big a chunk to look for, it's just the next hour. Help me make it through the next hour. Break it down in that. God is, James 5.11, he is full of compassion for you. And he is merciful toward you. And in that compassion and mercy, he will help you to endure. You will. Because of him. And he will be quick to lead you to repentance and restoration. That's the other part of the, how the book ends, right? In Job He's quick to bring Job to repentance. He's quick to restore his friends where you fail. Concern your mind with character, his above all and then yours. I'm going to give you a second concern this morning. Are you concerned to comfort the sufferer? Are you concerned to comfort the sufferer? What stands out in pronounced fashion in the book of Job is that this innocent sufferer fails <laughs> to be comforted by his friends. And it's painfully illustrated. Listen, I've told you this. He's got three friends, Elihu, Bildad, and Zophar. And they give one round of speeches. And Job answers each one of them after it. And then there's another round of speeches. And Job answers each one in between. And then there's a third round, and Elihu and Bildad and Zophar just quits. He's, I'm done. He doesn't even finish that one. And Job answers all of those. That goes on for 28 chapters. 28 chapters. So Elihu gave three speeches to Job, and he had three failed attempts to comfort him. Bildad had three speeches he gave to Job, and he failed to comfort him. And Zophar had two speeches that he gave to Job, and he failed to comfort him. Twenty-eight chapters of dialogue recorded between Job and his three friends, and those twenty-eight chapters are empty of comfort for the innocent sufferer. That is one of the things that just stands out when you read this book. It's one of the messages. Why is that one of the messages? So that we look at it and say, to not, to, to not do that. Don't do that. Right? That was my Mater impersonation for those of you who know Pixar. Sorry. <laughs> Don't do that. Right? Let's look at some of the painfulness of this. Go to Job chapter 2. First, we'll see where it actually happened well. Like, like Job started well in his suffering, Job's three friends also started off well. So let's look how they started well first. 
Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and what? Comfort him. That, this is why we're coming. Sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. He is sitting on the, on the trash pile. He shaved off all of his hair. He is a mess. He's, got, he's oozing with sores. They didn't recognize this pitiful lump of humanity sitting there. And they raised their voices and they wept. Best stuff to come out of their mouth. The whole next 28 chapters. Tears. Crying. Weeping. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. And they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. One of the best ways to comfort one who is really uncomfortable in pain, is to just be silent, but be present. To be near. And the friends did this very well at the beginning for seven days. And that was it. Seven days. And as soon as they heard the venting of Job's heart in chapter 3, they completely lost sight of comfort for him and set that aside and instead only wanted to correct him. Now listen, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk this morning here for the rest of the time about comforting the sufferer or correcting the sufferer. And it's not an or, it's an and. These two things are not adversaries in God's mind at all at the scene of suffering. Okay? But they quickly become adversaries if we're not careful. At the scene of suffering. Let's watch this unfold in a painful way. Go to Job chapter 6. Verse 14. Job says something very important. He links the comfort he wants to get to his character. Watch how even comfort impacts his character. Watch this. Chapter 6 verse 14. For the despairing man, Job says, there should be kindness from his friend. Why? Why? So that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. You comforting me helps me to hold on to my character. I want to fear God. Comfort me so I can do that. Do you want to be concerned for your suffering brother's character? Then show him kindness. Comfort him. After round one of his friend's speeches, turn to Job chapter 12 verse 4. This is at the end of round one of speeches. Job 12, verse 4. What does Job say? I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him. That's what his life used to be like. I was the man who called on God and he answered me. The just and the blameless man is a joke. No comfort there. After the first round of speeches, go to chapter 13. Same speech from Job as he's responding to his friends. Verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. But you, my comforters, you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. 
Oh, that you would be completely silent. I long for those first seven days when you were with me. And that it would become your wisdom to be silent. Worthless physicians. Verse 9 of chapter 13. (laughs) Will it be well when he examines you? Job says to them. He knew that day was coming. And it did. That was Job 42, 7 to 9 when God examined them. Look at verse 12. Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay, he tells his friends. Not, not, not very, these aren't difficult defenses to knock over. They're made out of clay. At the, uh, after Eliphaz, uh, Eliphaz's second speech, go to chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. He says, verse 9, his anger has torn me. Job says, God's anger has torn me. Now, ask this, is God angry at Job? No. But it is severe for Job, and God is not going to withhold it, what's coming at him, but it's not because he's angry. See, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are interpretive keys for how to understand what he's saying. His anger has torn me and hunted me down. This is how he feels. God has gnashed at me with his teeth. That's how it feels to him. My adversary glares at me. God is not his adversary. He's full of compassion and he's merciful towards him. He's upholding him in it, but that's how it feels to Job. They, verse 10, the people around me have gaped at me with their mouth. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have amassed themselves against me. God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. That's how it felt for Job. That's what he felt like he was receiving from them. Verse 20, my friends are my scoffers. My eyes weep to God. Go to chapter 17, verse 2. Job continues, Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation. Drop down to verse 10. But come again, all of you now, for I do not find a wise man among you. Wow. Scene of suffering where a guy needs to be comforted, it just got really personal. Not one of you is wise, he says. The comforters have become sorry comforters, ruffians, scoffers, mockers, and not wise. Can you imagine such a transformation taking place for the worse? Here's three friends who came, and the purpose to come together was so we can go sympathize and comfort Job. And what kind of man is Job? He is a blameless man. There's no one else like him on the face of the earth. And these two parties of respectable men sit down together, and this is what it has become. It's very sad. How sobering. But God provides his grace at times like that if we're watchful, to be watchful of ourselves. Let's look at what happens after Bildad's second speech. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 18. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded to what Job just said. How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding and then we can talk. That's kind of a jab back, wasn't it? Why are we regarded as beasts, as stupid in your eyes? O oh, you who tear yourself in your anger. For your sake is 
earth to, is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place? You're so important, we should move earth for you right now. There's no comfort in those words. It's really sad. Whatever pain Bildad saw in Job, he no longer can see because he's personally offended. And whenever you become personally offended, you become a lousy comforter. I do. Job's reply to Bildad in chapter 19, verse 1. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me, you are not ashamed to wrong me. Drop down to verse 13. He has, God has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Job's going to make a case for how alone he is. Watch this. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up, and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Friends, pity me. Pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Look, my flesh is falling off my body. Isn't this enough? What more do you want from me? I don't have a pound of flesh for you to extract from me. Now, not everything he is representing about God is the right way to represent God. But that's how he feels. And the point is, he's making his case for showing him pity, for showing him compassion, for comforting him. After Zophar's second and last speech, go to Job 21. And it just goes on like this, doesn't it? Verse 34, 21, 34. How then will you vainly comfort me, Job says, for your answers remain full of falsehood. The goal, to, uh, the goal to comfort a suffering brother is only failing. After Bildad's last speech, go to Job 26. This is Job's response after Bildad is finished. Verse 1. Then Job responded, listen to this sarcasm. What a help you are to the weak. How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. Do you see how far these friends, all of them, have fallen? Job included. It's, it's descended into personal attacks. It's descended into sarcasm. The last concern on his friend's mind is to comfort. And what is Job doing? Job is presenting himself in such a way where it is really difficult to want to comfort that guy. You can either be a comfort. No, not, you don't want to, it's not an either. Either be a comfort because you're the counselor or be comfortable. Be the one who can be comforted if you're the one suffering. It's possible at the scene of suffering to not make it easy for our comforters to comfort us. I know that. 
Also, Job is looking for a very specific kind of comfort, isn't he? And his friends just aren't providing it because Job is craving the comfort of their agreement. His body hurts, but his mind is tormented with all of his questions, with all of his thoughts, with all of his arguments, with all of his confusion, and he needs a salve. And he wants it from them, and they won't give it because they don't agree with him. Some of Job's final words to his friends are in chapter 30, verse 1. Now those younger than I mock me. So I'm getting mocked here at the scene of suffering. Verse 9. I now have become their taunt. I have become a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me. And they do not refrain from spitting in my face. Verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. Listen, Job is only getting silence from God. Because what he wants from God, what he's asking for God, God can't give it to him. Because God has a purpose in being silent with Job. To demonstrate that this one will remain loyal to me even if I don't answer him and give him an explanation for everything. He'll remain loyal to me. So Job, I'm sorry, I cannot answer you. That's a little interpretive in there. But that's the sense of what's going on. And he's not getting any comfort from his friends. So where does that leave this sufferer? It leaves him in a very lonely place. He's looking up, he's looking around, and there's no comfort. And listen, that shouldn't happen even in Job's case. His friends should comfort him all the more precisely because God is not answering him. And they wouldn't do it. They didn't do it. And that is one of the very sad messages that comes forth from this book every time you read it. Let me give you some principles to think about here. Sit long enough with the one suffering to watch your suffering friend, your suffering spouse, your suffering child, your suffering parent. And ask a variety of questions. Study the one who is suffering. How are you doing? If I ask the one suffering in my house, how are you doing? She says, fine. I'm doing, I'm doing good. And I'm like puzzled by the way I look, by the way she looks. And then, so then I've learned to ask the question, what are you feeling? Oh, my bones ache across the back and my eyes burn and my stomach's upset. And sit long enough to, to study, to watch. Because then you'll know how to comfort a body that's hurting Watch long enough to see the face, study the face, the eyes, the body language to discover how the body is doing. But even more so, sit long enough, listen long enough, be silent long enough to hear the venting of the heart that eventually comes. 
from the soul in that uncomfortable body. Job's friends started that way. The book of Job from chapters 3 to 31 is then Job venting from his heart. So watch the body and listen for the venting because that will tell you where the sufferer is. And when you hear the venting of the heart, there is a really good chance that you will hear wrong thinking somewhere. You're going to hear imperfect, imprecise theology. You're going to hear narrow thoughts that are in and of themselves not wrong, but that are spread too broadly or generalized in ways that they shouldn't to spread over their suffering and it shouldn't be done. There's a really good chance that even in their venting, you will hear something that you are just dying to correct and address. And the temptation will be to set comforting aside over on the back burner and move correcting over to the primary spot in front of you. Listen, let the one who is suffering hear you say out loud that you've heard what they've said. That you, you understand where they are at. Not because you've been there maybe, but you understand, I understand what you're saying. I can see how you might think that way. I can see how you might feel that way. Give them expressions of compassion and pity. I'm so sorry that you feel this way. This must be really hard. This is truly hard. Cry with them. Comfort them. Serve them with little deeds of whatever you can do that, that you can fix. But what you don't want at the scene of suffering is to quickly move to addressing their wrong thinking in a way, listen, in a way that makes them feel like they're only being confronted in their suffering and not comforted. Let me ask you some questions to think about. Should we comfort only the theologically precise ones who suffer? Should we comfort only the ones who display spiritual maturity in their suffering? Should we comfort only the believer who has been able to, in his pain, accurately assess the doctrinal considerations he is in his suffering and who has successfully controlled himself to not think wrong thoughts? Only that person gets comfort. No. You know the answers to these questions. What would you want in your pain and in your discomfort, and in your heartache, would you want to have to wait to receive comfort until you thought rightly? Comfort the one who isn't thinking rightly. Comfort him. Comfort her. Let me ask you this. This is not a trick question, I promise. Did Job need correction? Yes, he did. He needed correction. Did his friends provide it? Boy, they tried for 28 chapters. They tried to correct him, right? Second question. Did Job need comfort? Yes, he did. Did his friends provide it? No. That's what we must avoid. Comfort for the sufferer and correction for the sufferer are not P 
pitted against one another at the scene of suffering in God's minds. They are not permitted or uh, pitted against each other at the scene of suffering unless we make them pitted against each other. Listen, here's what the message is not this morning on this. Okay, this is not the message. Uh, Confront the sufferer less, comfort him more. That's not the message. Do you hear me? That's not the message. Comfort more, confront less. That's not the message. And the message is not this this morning either. Comfort is more important than wrong thinking being corrected. That is not the message from Job, and that's not what I'm saying. What is the goal? Make sure comfort is coming no matter what kind of person you're dealing with in front of you. That's the message. Comfort. Comfort them while they think wrong thoughts. Comfort them while you gently correct them for their wrong thoughts. And when they come to their senses with right thinking, keep comforting them. Comfort is always on the table for the one who is suffering. Now, counselor, when you're the one who's counseling, you're the friend who's trying to help the one who's suffering, you might be tempted to think this when they're expressing their wrong thoughts. You might be tempted to think this. If I comfort them while they are thinking wrongly, won't they take my comfort as agreement with them, as a validation of their wrong thinking? Maybe. So what? Most likely a time will come in their suffering, Lord willing, when you can help the sufferer learn that your expressions of comfort toward them are not necessarily or automatically expressions of agreement or validation of everything they've thought. You'll have an opportunity. And this is, this is really important. When the suffering one then learned that you still gave them comfort, even when you disagreed with them, what will they do? They will love you even more. You mean... You comforted me when I, when I said all of that? Yeah, I did. Because my comfort for you is not dependent on right thinking. Your right thinking. Sufferer, you will need correction as well as you will need comfort in your suffering. You will need it. Oh my goodness, I'm way past time. I'm sorry. I'm six minutes past time. Will you let me finish? You can leave if you need to. I won't be offended. Guess which one, though, between correction and comfort, guess which one will be more appealing and enjoyable to you? Being comforted or being corrected? Correction done rightly is a wonderful expression of love and an effective way toward comfort that you might not have anticipated. You might arrive at a satisfying comfort through a gentle correction, and that'll surprise you. So be gracious to your flawed and imperfect counselor who has become unsettled in his own soul by what you've said that he disagrees with. Because he's trying in the moment to figure out how to respond. He's trying to think, figure out what to do next with you. 
And you, sufferer, you're up for this challenge at the scene of suffering because God's grace is there for you and will be sufficient for you in it. Look at Job 33 for just a moment. Verse 1. Elihu, the unseen friend, finally shows up. There was one who was really wise. He studied for not seven days. He studied and listened for 28 chapters. For, for 28 chapters, Elihu. He, in verses 1 to 7, he, he tries to make himself say, Job, you have nothing to be afraid of with me. You don't need to be terrified by me. I, I belong to God like you. I'm like you. I'm made of clay like you're made of clay. You're weak. I'm weak. You've spoken in my hearing. I heard you. Verse 12, behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give account of all, he's, all of his doings? So here is a man who tried to come and comfort and be gentle and step in. And he corrected. The two things are not pitted against each other. They have to be done well together. Counselor. Between comfort and correction, guess which one will more likely make your suffering friend doubt your friendship and love? Guess which one you will have to work harder and labor longer with to overcome that misperception. Just accept that and take that on. You are up to that challenge at the scene of suffering. God's grace is there for you and will be sufficient for you to work through that. And both sufferer and counselor need to remember something very important when they get entangled in the knot of the two strings of comfort and correction. That get tangled not because God tangles them, but because we just do that to each other. Remember God's eagerness to forgive Job. And remember God's eagerness to restore his friends. God is the one who pursued Job towards repentance. God is the one who pursued his friends for restoration. And God will be that way at your scene of suffering for you when it doesn't go the way that you would have liked it to go with your friends. And so both sufferer and counselor can be like God to each other at that moment, at that challenging time. Pursue one another in forgiveness. Confess your sins to one another. Pursue one another um, for restoration of relationship to God and to each other. We'll finish there today and we'll do a part two, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we love how we are forgiven by you. We love how you um, overlook and restore us. We love how you have provided your son for us to cover every offense against you. We love your eagerness to restore us to you. I pray, Father, that you would be merciful to the sufferers in this body and the counselors in this body, that we would be as eager to love each other in that way as well and forgive and confess and restore ourselves to you and to each other when we make the scene of suffering a really tight knot. Oh Lord, teach us to comfort each other well and not be afraid to gently correct where needed. We need you desperately for this and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.